everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Toslieb. And my name is Jose Sanchez. And today on the podcast, we have Professor Claire S. Lee, who is speaking with us about cybercrime and cybersecurity, with a more focused attention specifically towards cyber hate and Zoom bombing. Claire Lee is an assistant professor at the School of Criminology and Justice Studies at the University of Massachusetts Law, where she is a member of the Center for Internet Security and Forensics Education and Research. She's also the UMass Law Donahue Humanities Ethics Fellow for 2021 through 2023. Dr. Lee's research interests include cybercrime, cybersecurity, and cyberterrorism issues. She has considerable experience in social big data and online data collection, big data analytics, and database creation. She has worked in the educational, media, and legal sectors in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Taipei, and Seoul. She currently serves as an editor of the International Journal of Cybersecurity Intelligence and Cybercrime and academic editor of PLOS One, and she is an editorial board member of the Sociological Review. It's great to have you on the podcast there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So in today's episode, we're going to start off by talking having kind of a general conversation about what is cybercrime and what is cybersecurity. Then we'll move into one of Claire's papers on Zoom bombing. And then we'll wrap up by asking Claire about some of her more recent projects on cybercrime. So Jose, why don't you get us started? Sure. So in true Criminology Academy fashion, we're going to start with a broad question. So with the exception of a small section devoted to the internet in one of our episodes with John Reed, you really are our first guest that is going to talk to us about cybercrime and cybersecurity. And so we want to set the stage for this discussion with so asking you can, if you can provide us with a definition as to what is cybercrime and what is cybersecurity. Because when I hear cybersecurity, I just think of like my antivirus that I buy from Amazon every year, but I'm guessing it goes a little beyond that. Yeah, the antivirus software is a big thing and it's a very important one. So you have a point there. So thank you. And I'm very honored to be one of the first scholars who the cyber crime research and being on this podcast. So yeah, like some other types of crime, cyber crime has many definitions. KC in 2001 defines cybercrime as any type of crime that involves computers, networks, including crime that do not really rely on computers. But I'm going to introduce my favorite definition and types of cybercrime, which are computer-assisted cybercrime, computer-facilitated crime, or computer-focused crime. So the first one, the first category I just mentioned is computer-assisted crimes or computer-facilitated crimes. This refers to crime that occur offline, but computers, internet technology facilitate certain types of crime. Like identity fraud, identity theft can be happening in our real life as in offline, but it is also can be transformed into online setting. The so-called online identity fraud can be existent due to computers and the internet. In addition, examples of computer-assisted crimes include, but that are not limited to digital piracy, online internet, 
online intellectual property, online identity fraud, cyberbullying, and cyberstalking, and so on and so forth. Another type that I'd like to highlight here is computer-focused crimes. This type of crime is perhaps more straightforward than the previous one. And when people think about cyber crimes, people usually think about computer codes on hackers' computer screens, like in a movie, like in a TV series, and all that. So hacking and computer viruses, worms, are examples of computer-focused crimes. These types of crime occurs because the computer, the internet, and technology. In other words, it is about crime that occurs due to the existence of presence of computer, internet, and technology, which are very much prevalent to our society. So, no, kind of putting this into perspective, you know, clearly technology has expanded and changed a lot over the last few decades, which in turn, I imagine, has had some pretty major impacts on how we think about crime and the environment where crime takes place. So, really, we're interested in when did cyber crime start becoming something that has been in discussion and kind of given attention? And how has crime in online spaces changed over time? Yeah, this is a very good question and big question. I'm going to yeah. probably answer some part of the question only due to the time constraint. So as early as the late 1990s, some people started to discuss sort of cybercrime in the literature, especially from the UK and Australia and moving to towards the United States later on, they were talking about cybercrime as a more digital crime or online crime or virtual crime. So the term has been changed. Around that time, they were mostly focusing on hacking, computer crime, and also like digital piracy, online intellectual property, friends, and all that. One of very important research conducted in 2001 was by an Australian Professor Peter Grabowski, he published a lot on cybercrime later on, but this article in 2001 entitled Virtual Criminality, Old Wine in New Bottles. So he discussed in his paper, Virtual Crimes, and he was arguing that like cybercrime or virtual crime were not new at that time, but the element of nobility comes in the great capacity, great capability of technology to facilitate acting on these motivations. So that was one of the early on important paper that published around the concept of cybercrime. As I briefly mentioned, the area of cybercrime has been grown so much, not as in types, not only as in types, but also as in capacity of the crime can do, crime can do not, and also like amount of victimization, the victimized money and all that. So it's been a slightly, like it's going to be a gold mine for some scholars that has to be somehow more vigilant about it. Yeah, absolutely. You started to kind of mention this, how like the number of cybercrime has been growing over time, but I imagine this is something that's difficult to estimate, but are there any estimates for how many cyber crimes occur each year, whether that's like how many crimes are actually caught, reported by victims or some other kind of measure? Yeah, that's 
another very good question, but it's very hard to answer. Okay. Especially in the world of cybercrime, we don't know how many victimization or incident cases are actually happen or that. Right. Like, for instance, if I got hacked, like my social media account got hacked, I don't necessarily want to or think about report this case to police police department. Even if I did, police department might not take it very seriously because there are other like crimes like gang related stuff or homicide and all that. So people kind of discourage to report the crime. Therefore, it is one of the underreported crimes as well, arguably, right? But in the US, the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, which we call the ISIS 3, published reports annually on internet crime compliance. So we only know about compliance, like those who were reported to FBI, but it's kind of a good sense for us to know how the size and amount of the victimization and victimization, victimized money could look like. So over the last five years, like, 2017 to 2021, the IC3 has received at least an average of 552,000 complaints per year. So these complaints address a wide range of internet schemes affecting victims across the globe. So IC3 reports category of internet crime or cybercrime have changed quite a lot um, over the past 20 years because it was started in May 2000, I think, as far as I remember. So earlier on, some of the types of internet crime complaint they got earlier on might not exist right now, like ransomware, cryptocurrency, those are quite new. They appeared recently as part of their complaint. Yeah, I imagine that number just in the abstract seems kind of small. So I can see what you mean that it's likely a very underreported, not to mention all of the people that maybe don't even know that they were a victim of cybercrime. So yeah, but it's good to at least put some kind of number to this to know what we're talking about. So just how difficult is it to police cyberspaces for crime that's occurring like on the internet or have occurred? Yeah. I would like to paint a lot of picture to say that policing cyberspace is already implemented. We don't have to worry about it and all that. But as you might guess, in reality, that's not the case. So as early as 2004, like one scholar even argued that policing in cyberspace is very scarce because the sophistication and computer and cyber criminals was uh, rapidly increasing and it becomes a real threat to our lives and all that. Even almost after 20 years, policing cyberspace is inherently difficult and inherently complex due to the nature of cyberspaces. You know, cyberspaces are tend to be like free, open, not geographically bounded and also highly anonymized. So we could see a lot of examples like online hate speech or some of the cybercrime that happens due to the anonymity. And also in terms of investigating cybercrime, 
it needs like cooperation from one agency to another agency or one country to another country. But these kind of interagency, international cooperation are highly challenging, especially we don't have a jurisdiction over some other country or VPN or IP addresses and all that. So that comes with some costs. At the same time, cyber criminals are smart enough, intelligent, then more intelligent than us to try to maneuver how can they not caught by any law enforcement agency and all that. So they could hide their location very easily, hide their identity or use other people's identity over their own identity and all that. So in short, policing cyber space for cyber crimes are started to implement it little by little, but there is a long way to go. And it's always difficult for law enforcement agency and other organizations to keep up with the speed of the development of the technology and new types of cyber crimes and all that. All right. So let's start to transition into the paper that we're going to be discussing today. And so earlier, you know, we talked about some of the crimes that fall under the, the cyber crime umbrella, but we want to focus more on a particular type of crime that's this episode, which is hate crime in the digital space. And so we know that a hate crime is motivated by bias against protected groups such as race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, disabilities. But what does this actually look like in online spaces? Yeah, hate crime in online spaces are not much different from what you just mentioned in terms of offline hate crime, but the space has been transported to cyberspace and online spaces. So we often call this as cyber hate, online hate, digital hate, or online racism, cyber racism in some cases, or online hate speech. So as you can see that certain kind of hatred towards particular group, whether it was from race, gender, ethnicity, religion, or disability, or some other kind of condition the person or the group of people might have, they are experiencing those things online. So people would receive some hate messages like via Twitter, or some people post something online, which is not true to their own identity and all that, or they would guess massive or nasty emails based on the other person's I mean, the receivers, gender, race, sexuality, and or, or other kind of elements of their social demographic factors. They could be cases of online hate and yeah, hate crime in cyberspaces. Okay, perfect. So I think we're at a good place to start to transition into the paper we're talking about today. It was authored by our guest, Claire, and it's titled Analyzing Zoom Bombing as a New Communication Tool of Cyber Hate in the COVID-19 Era. It was published in Online Information Review in 2022. And so just to give a little introduction, borrowing some of your own words, Claire, in this article, you explore the rise of cyber hate crimes on the Zoom video conferencing platform at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. More specifically, you examine victimization cases of Zoom bombing where Zoom is used as a cyber hate tool. 
To do so, you conducted a news media content analysis of 449 Google News articles and 79 tweets. And overall, the aims of the study were really twofold. First off, to assess the current state and prevalence of Zoom bombing victimization in relation to cyber hate in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And two, to examine the role of cyberspace as an effective atmosphere and Zoom bombing as a tool for performing cyber hate. So our first question for you regarding the article then is just, can you tell us what the motivation was for writing the paper or what the gap in the literature was that you were filling? Yeah, I'd like to answer for the motivation first. So I started here news about Zoom bombing when we had to stay at home. Do you remember that time? And did not know about COVID-19 in terms of how it could spread out and whether we can be going out and all that, right? So around that time, we used Zoom for pretty much for almost everything (laughs) from our social life to work and all that. So at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, around March 2020, I read upon a couple of newspaper articles on Zoom bombing cases, especially one of the universities in New York, which is a Jewish-based university, Nishiba University, and they had some kind of events and some person who wasn't invited for the event appeared and made a very nasty comment about the people who were participating in the event. And then later on, I also followed a few different cases, it seems such cases of Zoom bombing were targeted at particular group of people, not just like no randomly happened, at least to me, or at least around the time that I was trying to get into this space. So I felt the urgency and responsibility to research this topic as a cybercrime, cybersecurity researcher. And then I'm kind of going to the second question that you mentioned in terms of gapping the literature, what I found. I searched for some information, some more information about what Zoom bombing is. Am I overreacting to this situation because I'm like more empathetic to you, some group of people or not? Or I was trying to understand what's the sense of the situation. And then I could only found a couple of articles that was from purely computer science, engineering, cybersecurity papers on Zoom bombing about security breach and some other problems that the software might have had. As a social scientist, I felt that, yeah, security breach or kind of thing might be there. But I feel that's more than that. So I try to look out for more information and how should I I want to engage with this topic. And there was almost no article in terms of social science and humanities literature talking about this. Of course, it was very new in terms of the phenomenon. It was very new, given that the infancy of the topic, the gap in the literature was understandable. And... But what was a little bit more outstanding to me was that, like, even before we are using Zoom, we also use sort of similar kinds of telecommunication tools like Skype, 
or some other things, right? But there were not many papers on those telecommunication tools and this kind of thing happened. So it was quite a wake up call for me to figure out what is this and if it's continue and if we are going to use Zoom for more than a year, more than two years, whatever, then what we need to do. And as a researcher, how can I try to educate other people or try to understand the situation better, even for myself? So I think people can have started to kind of get a general idea of what we're talking about when we say like Zoom bombing. And I think people like professors, students, or professionals may have some, uh, probably know what Zoom bombing is, but for those of those that don't know exactly what Zoom bombing is, can you give us like a definition of what exactly we're talking about? Yeah, sure. Zoom bombing has two words, Zoom and bombing, right? Probably it's a little bit aggressive term that was started used in the community. I'm going to go into that a little bit later. But Zoom bombing is the practice of disrupting virtual meetings with graphic, explicit, threatening messages or images that often include hate speech and online hate speech. Right. So the first Zoom bombing um, recorded, the first Zoom bombing incident was reported in March 2020. And then the same month, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, announced that there is an emerging video teleconferencing hijacking scheme called Zoom bombing happens in the U.S., probably later on in the world. So, and I found it quite interesting that FBI was concerned and they were they putting out information about Zoom bombing very early on. They were trying to engage what this would entail and all that. So, yeah, that's a quick answer to your question. Right. And so the focus of this paper specifically wasn't necessarily on like the security or underpinnings of Zoom exactly. But do you have any idea of how exactly people were being able to do Zoom bombings, how they were kind of taking over Zoom meetings? Yeah. So it happened in a couple of different ways. Like from cybersecurity perspective, it happens if there was a glitch in the system, some people might go in. But what I found, at least in my research in my cases, it wasn't like that. It was more like intended or accident kind of stuff. Like, so people who wanted to go to different Zoom meetings, but those people were not invited to go there, so-called Zoom bombers, they searched public events that didn't need any reservation or registration or restriction to get a Zoom link. So they intended to go there and they search for certain information, either meeting link or meeting ID, where passwords sometimes people were posted like online or school website or Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So they went there to get those information. So as you can see from these examples, it wasn't very highly technical, but it was more like the information was out there. So therefore I can get it, just go and get it. So earlier on, people were not realized anyone can do so-called bad stuff. Anyone can go to 
anyone would be interested in going to other people's meetings. But in reality, some people have their agenda and their motivation to particular group of people and they went there to go to Zoom cases. And I also found some cases like some people, especially like teenagers, they don't have a lot of sense of so-called awareness or cybersecurity and all that. So they just posted around like, you know, I'm very bored <laughs> in this class. Do you want to come over? Like, do you want to just show up? They found this as a fun, but, you know, as the other side, if you are teaching to, the, you know, if you teach, teach some classes, then some people just show up and then like say something unnecessary, then it's very shamed and disruptive to not only the lecturer or so to the entire audience of the Zoom classes. So yeah, that's how it happened mostly. Yeah, I feel like I remember early on in the pandemic, like on Twitter, it was like everyone was posting the Zoom links with the passwords were no passwords. And now for those meetings that are posted or discussed on Twitter, you know, they're like, please don't like, we're not sharing the password, you need to email so and so or just like this is happening. So I think people have noticed that and adjusted kind of how they post these more public events to try and prevent things like this from happening. So when I was reading your paper, I was like, oh, this kind of ties into what I've been seeing, that it's not super technical. They're not hacking into these. They're just kind of finding the information and going into the call. So I thought that was really interesting that kind of what I've been seeing, you know, in my own personal experiences are matching what you were finding in the research. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing. And we often try to do like cybersecurity awareness campaign or like training. I'm sure your university does that. My university does for new employees and students. Where some of the training that are implemented do not necessarily work very well, but this time somehow people got to know about the residents and potential implication and they started to do this kind of so-called good baby behavior by themselves. So it's a, you know, thing that Zumbabing started to happen that was not good, but in the end, there is any something that people get out of it. That part, I'm happy about it. Okay, so in your paper, you use this term cyber racism, which was surprisingly actually coined back in 2002. I know for a lot of our students now, that may seem like forever ago, and they might even wonder if the internet existed in 2002, but we promise you it very much did. And so building off someone else's work, you state that scholars have, quote, criticized the way the digital realm has empowered expression of racism. So can you tell us a little bit more about cyber racism and sort of how online spaces have worked to empower expressions of racism? Yeah, that ties into the way the cybercrime is structured, perhaps, because it is ultimately a free and anonymized space to some extent compared to our offline life. What I mean by that is, in order to create my Twitter account, I can use any Twitter handle that I would like to use unless it wasn't taken by other people, right? Or if I want to use my, if I want to create a Instagram account or as in like hacker want to free, then 
people would think that I'm hacker, right? <laughs> Something like that. So that kind of practice opens up avenue for some people with quite a bad intention and some motive to harm people to do whatever they want to do. And one thing that I'd like to note is that in the U.S., because the Fourth Amendment and all that, free speech is governed very differently from other countries. So people often have more freedom, feel like they have more freedom to speak about what they want to do, especially in online life. So they are not surveyed or they are not governed by any authorities or any companies and all that. So that kind of practice open up a lot of spaces for people who have either have a motivation for racism and some other things or just use benignly on the internet to give an idea what they could do and what they couldn't do online. Great. So you use content analysis to analyze your data. And if you want to speak a little bit about that, please do. But we want to start to move into your results. And so based off of the content analysis that you did, how many incidents of Zoom bombing were you able to identify between I think, March 10th, 2020 and April 10th, 2020? Yeah, I used that time frame because that was almost the first Zoom bombing incident that was reported by the newspaper articles and all that. So I wanted to follow up the first hint of the Zoom bombing instances. So around the first month or the one the single month that I studied, I found 469 newspaper articles, cases. One thing that I would like to note here is that we don't actually know how many cases are happening. You know, like I mentioned, cybercrime is one of the underreported crimes, especially online hate speech and all that. You don't necessarily report these kind of cases to other people and agencies. So with that, it's likely happened more than 469 cases, but and this, that's what I saw in terms of my data. Seems like a lot for even a one month time span, let alone if you say it's underreported likely. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So you split the remainder of your results into three subsections. And so we want to talk about the first one, which was identity at the core of cyber hate, racial, religious, and sexual minorities indicating that certain identities were more at risk for Zoom bombing. Can you tell us more about this finding? Yeah, I found a few different types of Zoom bombing, as you mentioned. So one of the most significant cases that I could see from my data and analyze from my data was an anti-Semitic Zoom bombing towards either Jewish descendants or religiously Jewish people. So, and in March and April, there is at least one Jewish holiday Passover. So some Jumbabamars were targeted at particular events like that. And also like funeral was happened, funeral was happened via Zoom because all the restrictions that we've gone through, so which is very secure, private, sacred place to mourn the people who passed away to give some empathy towards the family about Zoom bombers didn't really take, you know, take that perspective towards that. So that's one of the cases that I've been seeing. And then 
Yeah, there was about like more than 70% of the cases that in my data. In some other data that I had in terms of finding was educational settings, like at Sam mentioned some classes, my experience, some of the bombing cases that in my data, I found a few cases in California, unfortunately. So the Zoom information was posted freely on the internet and the hijacker or the bomber tried to get into that setting to, you know, do something for other people. Right? So that's what like, the other cases happen both at higher education and also K-12 education level. And I've got also some bombing cases towards minorities, either sexual minority or ethnic racial minorities. So they were targeted because of their minority status. So they were the Zoom bombers were seeing some nasty stuff towards them on the Zoom events that were public enough. So these are some of the cases that I've been analyzed in my data. So you know, one of your subsections and the one that Jen and I are probably most familiar with is like the hijacking or Zoom bombing of educational environments. Can you tell us more about how common it was for classrooms to be Zoom bombed? Yeah, at least in my data, that was probably the second largest data, if I remember correctly, but I have to check. So from the time that I studied Zoom bombing, we used, or I also taught classes over Zoom. So many of us were kind of locked in Zoom every single day, you know, so and some attackers might come in to the classroom to say something bad about the teacher, the lecturer and professor and all that, or they appeared with a strange costume with their camera on and saying something and went away and all that. So those things were happened as well. And in some cases, inappropriate photos um, text messages or chat messages were thrown out during the classes. I'm just imagining if those classes were happen in my classes and would be quite awful. So yeah, I feel very bad for you know those who have actually experienced it um, during that time. Yeah, I know. I saw people posting things on Twitter and I was like, I can't even imagine that happening in my classroom. So I feel you on the same page. All right. So the final section then that we want to talk about was regarding anti-Semitic Zoom bombing. And so how many cases of Zoom bombing were anti-Semitic in nature and were they targeted in any way? Well, I think I kind of answered that earlier. Should I do it again? Or do you want me to answer a little more detailed? Yeah, maybe just a little bit more detail okay. just to kind of, yeah, break yeah. it down. Right. So like more than 70% of the reported Zoom bombing cases were anti-Semitic. So the Zoom bombers were either infamous extremists or unknown perpetrators. So in terms of the infamous extremists, like uh, there was quite something to the Jewish community around that time that like we can actually be targeted even on cyberspace like this in very public spaces. So it also, Zoom bombings happens a lot towards Jewish holidays or 
the Friday Sabbath events very regularly happening on every Friday to Saturday. So the perpetrator actually knew the content of the particular event, what they are going into, and they actually had an agenda to go there to do something. So they were probably arguably far-right people who have an intention to psychologically or culturally harm the targets. Okay, so then our final question for you about your paper is, given these findings, you know, what are some of the implications that we can take away for the study for research as well as policy and practice? Yeah, first of all, I think it's important for us to note that cybersecurity awareness is still very important. Like we already talked about how important putting not putting your own information on not putting your Zoom information public and all that, right? It is better to be more vigilant and aware of what you want to do and what you want don't want to do in terms of sharing your class information, sharing your events information on their public can not always be a good thing. So through this study that I conducted, I could see some implication towards how we can better govern and regulate police digital platforms and cyberspaces, protecting particular group of people that have been established as a common target of cyber hate, online hate speech, and we might want to provide certain kind of resources and training towards those people. And we also want to educate our younger generation who have a slightly, probably slightly different idea of cyberspace and how their behavior would be. So we might want to try to engage with them to make a safer internet space. Awesome. All right. I don't know whether it makes sense. <laughs> so. no, yeah, it does. All right. So that is all that we have time for today. We just want to say thank you once more for taking the time to chat with us. Is or Where can people find you if they want to reach out and ask you more questions, whether it's about Zoom bombing or other issues related to cybercrime and cybersecurity? Yeah, you can find me via email, Claire Underbarley at umr.edu. Yeah, I'll be happy to be connected with any of you. And thank you very much. Awesome. Well, thank you once again. And we look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.